Hey friends, welcome back to this week's episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. I'm your non-diet dietitian, trainer, and host Katie, and this is episode 259. Today, I'm so excited. We're bringing back the Client Spotlight series, and today you get to hear from my client, Ashley. Ashley recently graduated or is getting ready to graduate from grad school and shares her experience of intuitive eating and just all the ebbs and flows that come with that, not just as you grow as a human, but growing through different seasons of life and also unique to her story is struggling with chronic pain. So we definitely talk about how movement ties into that as well. And if I sound a little funny, I am currently recording this from my hotel room here in Florida for work and something bit my lip or I don't know, but if you could see me right now, my lip on the right side is like the size of a golf ball. Maybe that's being dramatic, but that's how it feels. And so you probably don't notice I'm talking funny, but I feel that I'm talking real whack. So if you notice it, that's what's happening in my life. But either way, I know you're going to get a lot from today's episode as I always tell my clients, you know, them sharing their stories and they're so excited to share their stories, but it's because they're you. They are you listening. They are you know, your friends, your family, everybody who walks around a diet culture. And I think it's really inspiring for you to hear their stories, knowing that it's possible to get to a place of food freedom and just an overall healthier, happier relationship with food and movement and your body. So remember, if you want to work with our team, you can just go to the link in the show notes or visit katiehake.com forward slash schedule. You'll fill out a short application Tell us a little bit about your goals. We'll hop on a quick consult call to just see if we vibe it's the right fit. And then from there, we talk about scheduling. So check it out. Let me know what you think. If you have any questions, slide into my DMs. All right, team, onto the show. Welcome to Fit Friends Happy Hour, a podcast about all things nutrition, fitness, and life in your 20s and 30s all from a non-diet lens. I'm your host, Katie Hake, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified personal trainer. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people and experts from all walks of life about their relationship with food and their bodies. I'll also share my experience working with clients in my private practice to help women find food freedom and body confidence. I'm on a mission to help you stop quantifying and start living learn to stop measuring your success by the scale and find your fears. Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Number one, excited to just see you and connect and catch up. But number two also was thrilled when you were like, wait, I want to talk on your podcast. I have a lot to say. And I was like, yes, you do have a lot to say. (laughs) You have an awesome story that I really think is unique, but also I think a lot of our listeners will resonate with. So why don't we just start there? Tell us a little bit about you kind of backstory on your journey with intuitive eating and where it's kind of gotten you today and what you do. Sure. So I started by listening to your podcast, goodness, like 2018, 2019, something like that. And then when the pandemic first started, I reached out to you because you were doing your boot camp for the first time. And then that eventually opened up to us working one-on-one and have grown a lot. And it's crazy. It's like you have seen me through not only like a pandemic, but also an entire master's degree. I'm almost done with my master's. Um, and it, we started this before I even started it or knew where I was going for my master's. So the light, the light at the end of the tunnel, I'm happy. I'm honored to say I've seen it through with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You have seen the hardships and the good. Yeah. And so I started about two years ago, I guess, with actively working on intuitive eating. And then outside of intuitive eating, I am, like I just said, in my master's for speech language pathology. I am in my last set of clinical rotations, um, which is super exciting. I'm very excited to get out in the world and actually work and help people and do what I love. 
I live in Illinois. I am currently renting an apartment with my husband and my two cats. And I don't know, does that cover it? Yeah. So share, share with us if you remember, oh my gosh, it feels like forever, but what was it that really prompted you to kind of take the next steps? Because I remember when we for oh my gosh, I, I actually vividly remember us talking on the phone, our first conversation, because you were in this transitional season of life, but what was it for you? Do you remember what kind of prompted you to go, okay, this is beyond me. It's okay to reach out for help and what that looked like. Yeah. For reasons that I think had to do with diet and exercise, but also my illness that I have since been diagnosed with, I just felt like shit. And I felt like a big change. And I also was really just tired of diet culture and constantly feeling bad about myself that I really wanted to engage with intuitive eating more. And at the very least, I knew I was going to learn something that was going to help me feel better, or at least I hoped it would help me feel better. And so that was a big part of why I did eventually reach out and have that phone call with you is that I was just tired of not feeling good. And one of the first steps I made in my health journey, not just my intuitive eating journey, but my health journey was reaching out to you. It was a big first step of realizing that the stuff I was dealing with wasn't normal and that yes, diet and exercise and all of that, the nutrition side of things helps a lot. Um, but it did lead, open it up to the other avenues of things that I ended up going into to help figure out how to make myself feel better. Yeah. So maybe, maybe let's start there. Kind of what were some of the things that you learned that you started to implement kind of through the beginning, the early stages of your intuitive eating journey, right? Because I know how it ends, but our our listeners don't. So tell us kind of what were some of the biggest challenges that we worked through? Mm -hmm. And then let's go and talk a little bit about how you went about actually getting a diagnosis and we can dive into that. Yeah. So some of the first big things that I remember working through is that I, throughout my life, during different stages of my life, have dealt with food insecurity. And oftentimes it wasn't necessarily that I didn't have food available, just I couldn't afford healthy, good food. It was usually very processed and cheap. And through that, I had a lot of ignoring my hunger cues. I kind of as a learned skill. I learned how survival. to survival. Yeah. Survival yeah. mechanism, really. Yeah. Um, I remember a day in my undergrad where I was there from like 8 a.m. to pretty much 8 p.m. and I had forgotten lunch and I didn't have any money to buy lunch. And so I really just toughed it out. I didn't have time to like go home because um, I lived off campus. So it was a survival skill that I learned to just ignore my body, as well as I realized this later on, ignoring my pain um, was also something that I learned in that same kind of process. But I learned to ignore it. And so one of the very first things that you and I had worked on was identifying my hunger cues, not so much my fullness cues. I feel like I started out with a better grasp of my fullness cues than my hunger cues. But once we identified my hunger cues and I got better of like identifying it and really paying attention when I was eating, I also started paying attention when I wasn't eating. We uh, set like reminders on my phone to check in with myself because I was really good at ignoring it and not paying attention. So hours would go by before I would think to pay attention. Especially as a busy grad student, I think a lot of our listeners can resonate with that. Maybe you have had disordered eating tendencies or I don't even like in your case, it, it wouldn't, it would, it's not considered disordered eating, but it was just we'll just say a thing with nutrition, right? Mm -hmm. Where it was a disconnect. And, but then you get to a different season of life where just like you said, and maybe busy parents or grad students, or I know we have like fitness instructors, listen, it's kind of just, you get in this habit of ignoring your cues, just like you said, and go, 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 and not nourishing your body because it's, it's not top priority in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I actually still have those reminders on my phone. I don't need them quite as often, 
but I have one, I think for like breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then like two or three sets of like maybe snacks, um, just kind of depending how I feel. And then after we worked through that whole process of identifying and paying attention to my hunger cues, it started really going into food freedom. Unlike, I feel like a lot of people, I had a more restricted diet about healthier foods than I did not healthy foods. So like I would be perfectly fine eating Oreos or whatever, but like spending the time and energy on myself to give myself good nutritious food was a little bit more difficult. And I mean, I do have a sweet tooth. I still have a sweet tooth. I will always have a sweet tooth. And so also learning that like, I I keep Oreos in the house so that I can have them whenever I want. And that was a very big thing for me. I think Oreo specifically was a very big uh, step for me in my journey because I was able to like acknowledge like they're there. I can eat them. I can buy more. I don't have to worry about it. And just by giving myself that permission to do it and keeping it around, I can't remember honestly the last time I've had an Oreo because I just, they aren't what sounds good most of the time. Um, But I keep them because I know that that's like one of those like trigger foods, I guess, for me to allow myself to have that. And I have other foods in the house too that are like that, where I just like having them there because at some point in my life, either I couldn't have them or I didn't allow myself to have them or I felt guilty eating them. And Mm so for whatever reason, I have started keeping them in my house. And I think that was the other very big step in that process for me was relearning that it's okay to eat um, and Mm -hmm. it's okay to eat what my body wants and what I want and paying attention to the different types of hunger too. I think those two things were the biggest things I feel like I had to tackle when I started that journey. Can you share a little more about you mentioned it was almost easier to get through some of those off limits foods, the processed foods compared to nutrient dense, fresh foods. Like, can you share what your experience was like with that, especially while also navigating a busy, crazy schedule in grad school? Yeah. We had a lot of conversations. I remember about just like the whole eating experience. Yeah. So following the different periods of my life of food insecurity, cooking at times felt like a chore, which was really hard because I love to cook. I cooked in restaurants when I was younger and I really enjoyed it. And so when my life got busier and it started to feel like a chore to cook for myself, it also sapped a lot of the joy out of cooking for myself. And so it would be easier in that sense, like the mental sense to go ahead and eat something that was quick and easy, as well as the logistical sense of eating something or ordering in or something like that. And truthfully, part of my intuitive eating journey was learning to be okay with that because it reflected the period of my life more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my food choices had to do with the logistics at the time and whether that be financial or time or what have you. And particularly in grad school, it was really hard. And so I started to find ways to be more creative about what I was eating and how I was obtaining it. So one of the groceries here has a really awesome deli that has pre-made food that is very nutritious, delicious. It's just phenomenal. And it's a great option for something when I don't have the time or energy to cook where like I can get mashed potatoes and chicken and vegetables or whatever, and just have to warm it up. Um, And so it was a lot of finding ways around my limited schedule, my limited budget to be able to try to eat as nutritious, nutritiously as possible while still devoting most of my time to studying and 
the clinical work that I had to do along with the rest of my master's. At times it was easier to mentally eat foods that weren't as nutritious and logistically, but I really encourage everyone to try to get creative and find ways around that. There are a lot of like microwavable things of rice and vegetables that you can steam in the microwave. Even like Meyer has cooked chicken, like shredded chicken. Um, brands have like pre-cooked food in the frozen section that you just warm up. Like it's not the easiest and it's not the best, but it is at times the most convenient and you're able to kind of fill that gap in a way that is still taking care of your body. Yeah. I think a lot of people listening probably resonate with that too, of this kind of tug of war of, I want to nourish my body. I want to, you know, focus on nutrition, but at the same Mm -hmm. time I have this really crazy schedule or I'm caring for a loved one or whatever it is that at the end of the day, cooking meals (laughs) and this, you know, quote unquote, healthy eating just cannot be top priority. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's getting to that point. I think for you, it was recognizing, okay, this cannot be my top priority, but I can also keep it a priority mm-hmm. while being flexible in my approach, because I think a lot of it comes back to what we believe that quote unquote healthy eating has to be, that it has to be, that I make everything from scratch and I meal prep all the containers from breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack. But it's like, no, it really, it doesn't have to look like that. You can still have convenience. You can still have quick with finding that, that sweet spot that honors all areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And it is definitely worth just taking a little bit longer in your grocery trip to walk around and find what those alternatives are. Or even going through, like a lot of stores have apps now. So even if you just scroll through, you can find things that are more convenient that are still going to be nutritious for you and take care of your body, which became a really important part of my life within the last year. Mm -hmm. So let's backpedal a little bit then tell if you can share a little bit about some of the physical aspects of what you were struggling with. And I know you went through a lot of testing and different things, but kind of in a nutshell, how you got to where you were, what were the, some of the things that you experienced and how did you go go about getting a diagnosis? So throughout my entire life, I've had pain that I thought was normal. Um, I never understood how like people could squat or like sit cross-legged or like various different things that people were doing where I was like, how are you not in pain right now? Like, how, how are you doing this? And throughout, like from like eight years old to my senior year of high school, I had lots of knee dislocations in particular and had surgery on one of my knees. And then when I was in my undergrad, I had a surgery on the other knee because it also had a pretty big dislocation. My, I think it was my sophomore year. And I just kind of thought my knees were screwed up. And then I was having a hard time sleeping. My body was achy. Um, I was just dealing with a lot of, honestly, a lot of pain And I started having some neurological issues and like some stomach issues that were inconsistent, intermittent, that I didn't really feel like had much of a pattern to it. Um, And I had a lot of hip pain that nobody could explain. And so when I... We worked through even like swimming or trying to find modes of activity that felt okay. And that was, that I would say that was even a challenge. Yeah. I think that was a big thing too, is that I never enjoyed much physical activity because it caused me pain. It was difficult and painful. And so a big thing that you and I worked on, like you just said, is that I was trying to find things that didn't hurt. And one of those things before 
I started working with you was rock climbing. I love rock climbing. I miss it a lot. I don't do it now because I don't have a rock climbing gym within like even a 45 minute drive of where I live. But I would rock climb. It was a really good exercise and it makes a lot of sense with the diagnosis I have because a lot of it is about strengthening and stability and focus. Uh, And so, but when you and I started working together, I was having a really hard time being physical with pretty much everything. Even just like going up and down the stairs in my own house was difficult for me. Um, And so you and I worked through finding swimming was a big one. And I now have a little bit more regimented than I think a lot of people would want to have because a lot of what I do physically has to do with like structured physical therapy type exercises to keep my joints in place. (laughs) And so throughout my time here after, so I moved from Indianapolis to Illinois to do my master's. And while I was here, I had another knee dislocation, which technically should not have happened because I've had two surgeries to prevent that. And when I went to go see my primary here, she mentioned Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is what I eventually did get diagnosed with. It is a pretty rare connective tissue disorder where my collagen is malformed. And this, in my case, has a pretty big impact on the stability of my joints. So pretty much all of my joints at some point are very loose. um, And it takes a lot of work and concentration to make sure that I maintain their well-being by doing the physical therapy exercises that I've done. So over the past year, I have gone through physical therapy for just about every joint but my ankle to learn how to stabilize, uh, strengthen the muscles, and through this, reduce pain. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's likely for those listening, obviously, if you have some sort of physical challenge or pain, you learn to just like Ashley, just like you shared, I learned to ignore my hunger cues. The same thing can happen with physical movement, right? You, you learn to compensate and that's a survival mechanism by using those other muscles or joints that might be more stable, but that can lead to a lot of, yeah, you don't know how to stabilize your joints because you've always done it a certain way for so long. So how has that been? Yeah. So a lot of it initially, unless you are coming from an injury from that hypermobility is kind of unlearning the compensatory strategies that your body has created over the years. It is pretty common for people with EDS to get diagnosed in adulthood. And so a lot of people with EDS do have to kind of unlearn what their body was doing. So for me, that was, like I said, a lot of physical therapy and my physical therapist would work through my muscles and like physically like manipulate. Yeah. Yeah. That like do the manipulation therapy for the first like 20, 30 minutes of my session. And then I would go through and do exercises. And so that combination helped undo some of the like learned muscles to be able to relearn the new processes that I was doing. And so physical therapy, honestly, was a great experience. I know that that's not the case for everyone. For me, it was super helpful with my pain. I had a great physical therapist. Actually, it was a good team because occasionally I would see other people. And they understood not only hypermobility, but EDS itself, which I kind of blame based on my location because there's a pretty big EDS doctor in the area. So I'm sure they see a little bit more patients than normal, but they were great. They were super knowledgeable. They knew like this strengthening exercise won't work. It'll just like push your knee out more, but this one, this one will do a good job. So we're going to do this one. Lots of modifications of exercises. I had started lifting weights for enjoyment. That's so exciting to hear. Yeah. That's a big um, deal. Yeah, I I really do enjoy it. But through, I started doing that before I realized how global my symptoms were. 
Um, so then I would like be doing like a shoulder press and then be like, oh, I have a headache. Weird. And so then I talked to my physical therapist about it, talked to my doctor about it. And then I did physical therapy for my neck and shoulders. And that reduced a lot of the headaches I was having, which was really great. Interesting. Yeah. It, Cause the, I was having like instability in mm-hmm. my neck and I, I mean, I had instability for ever. And so my shoulders and my, like the muscles in my shoulders and my neck compensated by getting super tight. And so I was having lots of muscle tension headaches because of that tightness. So I had to like relieve the tightness of that and build up the proper muscles to keep my head in place keep it stable to prevent further headaches. And I learned that through lifting weights and going, hmm, this doesn't feel quite right. And so I started lifting weights, stopped lifting weights so that I could learn basically the fundamentals of how my body should be working so that I could get back to it. And so I think that's the biggest thing for my hypermobility and my EDS as far as movement goes is that although I am very big about gentle movement, as we have discussed, just because I didn't enjoy it for so long that I had a really hard time being like, no, I have to do these specific exercises Mm -hmm. for this Mm -hmm. long, this many times a week. When I was in physical therapy, like actively going to sessions, it was a lot easier because I, you know, throughout my knee injuries throughout my life, I was like, I'm conditioned to do that. Structured. It was an appointment you had to go to. Yeah. Yeah. But then after I was completely discharged from their services, it was really hard to not necessarily the willpower behind it, just like having to go to be able to do the activities that I want. I have to do these exercises that are a lot less fun and a lot more structured and tedious because you're doing the same thing. Like once you have gone through physical therapy and they give you X amount of exercises, Mm -hmm. you're just making them slightly more difficult over time. So you're doing the same thing and it gets really boring and it's not really all that fun. So that I think is the biggest difference between the way I was approaching movement before my diagnosis is that I understand and try really hard to allow myself to have that structured time so that I can do the less structured, more fun movement that I want to do. Even just as simple as being able to like go on a walk with my husband was getting hard Or, I mean, even swimming at times would be hard because you have that extra resistance of the water. Oh, yeah. And so I learned that I had to do that structured exercise to be able to do the more fun things I wanted to do. It almost reminds me like if somebody was training for a race or, right, it's like this long-term goal, but it feels so far away. It's not super tangible, but you know that you have to do those little baby Mm -hmm. steps that don't, uh, aren't always so fun. Or, you know, for example, like going back to the nutrition piece, it's like, I'm going to meal prep a few things this week, or I'm going to go to the grocery. Just like when you were in grad school, it was like, I don't really want to, this is not fun, but I know it's good for me, but it's coming from a different lens. I think how you're describing that it's not coming from a lens of weight loss or restriction or diet culture. It's, it's really shifting how you look at how you're taking care of your body with a different mindset, a different long-term goal. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I, um, when it comes to the movement of things, I think a a lot of my focus is on mobility because that can something that can be something that gets really restricted. The more hypermobile your body is as well as quality of life. I still struggle at times with like wanting to lose weight. Um, that is something that I continuously work on within myself, but my mindset has definitely shifted from that to how can I make my body feel the best, um, and do what I need and want it to do in a way that 
people that don't have a chronic disability, they don't necessarily think through it the same way. Um, And that's okay. Like they don't have to. But as somebody that does have this chronic disability, it's about preventing any long-term damage, preventing it from getting worse. So maintaining, um, as well as trying to improve just the general quality of life and not being in classes has also helped. So there is a stress factor. (laughs) I have also been able to start cooking again. And I try to make sure both in my movement and in my food, I may do boring stuff. Like I have found that it's a lot easier to bring like pre-made salad to work, but then cook fun food for dinner. Mm, Yeah. I love that. And trying to make sure that I have thought through, like, do I have enough to make leftovers? Am I going to make leftovers? Like all that, like I've really, I've learned that for me, that's what's easiest. And same with movement. I may do my exercises, but I will also make sure that at least once or twice a week, I go and do something that is not my exercises to make sure that I'm still maintaining the fun parts of intuitive eating in my life and keeping with that same theme. I also, when I do my physical therapy exercises, cause I do get bored and I, as a grad student, never had time to read. I what, reading for fun. What's that? What's that? Um, I started listening to audiobooks when I do my physical therapy. Um, and so that has made it like, it is something I only do when I'm doing my physical therapy. So it helps keep me motivated to continue doing the boring exercises because I have that time to listen to a book and it makes it easier to do the exercises because as you get lost in the story, you aren't thinking quite as much about like how awful (laughs) it can be at times to be doing single leg squats for (laughs) 10 minutes. (laughs) Single leg squats. Those are never fun, regardless of what you're doing. Yeah. You mentioned this still, still fighting that desire to have a smaller body or to, you know, shrink, shrink your body. What would you say are some of the other major challenges that you still navigate, you know, kind of in this new season of intuitive eating or your journey side note, it's been, it's so fun to just hear how far you have come because like, it always blows my mind doing these client spotlight interviews, because I just want to be like, do you hear yourself? Like, do, can we pause, rewind back to when we first met? Do you hear the words coming out of your mouth right now about how you're talking about your body, how you're talking about how you see food? You know, it's, it's so, uh, it gives me goosebumps, makes me happy. So squirrel back to my question. You mentioned that desire for weight loss. So what would you say are some of the other biggest challenges that you navigate at this, this stage? Um, I feel like this, it goes along with the wanting to be in a smaller body, but it's, it's very different with the diagnosis that I've gotten, although it is specific, like bear with me, everyone. Um, it is very specific to my diagnosis, but I feel like a lot of people can really relate to this. I had to go through grief with my diagnosis of what I thought my body was going to eventually be like. Um, Cause I kind of was like, oh, I'm in grad school. Like it'll get better when I'm out of grad school. And then when I got my diagnosis, I had to really grieve what I thought my body was going to be like. And then the part that I think people can really relate to is I had to start learning and I still struggle with this too, not to be angry at my body and not to hate my body. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's for the things that I want it to do that it cannot do. And for my bad days where I have to have somebody else go like get my students because I can't physically walk down the hallway without having my hips go in and out of place. Things like that are very frustrating. And so it's really hard to learn to love and accept my body in that way. Because a lot of body positive spokespeople, I guess, are very much uh, have this kind of mentality of like, don't love your body for what it looks like, love your body for what it does for you. Mm -hmm. And especially when I first got my diagnosis, it was okay. So I don't particularly love what my body looks like. 
And I really, really do not like what it does for me because at the moment it, it wasn't doing much of anything besides causing my life more stress. It's a very ableist view. Yeah. Which you bring, you bring up such a good point. I don't think we talk about it enough is that there's some aspects that you, you could even say diet, diet culture, but even like within body positivity that say, it's like assumes that you have no other, you're able-bodied, you have no other medical conditions or things that you, that physically add another level of challenges or mental pieces to work through. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, like I said, I'm still working through that. My good days, it's a lot easier to have that positive mindset around my body, but that is something that is really hard to learn that it's okay that my body doesn't function the way that a typical body would and that there are still good things about it. That is like, even saying it out loud can be hard, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think also learning to not like the celebrations, the small celebrations that you have, especially as somebody with a disability can be very different than the small celebrations that you have with a non-disabled body. And it's hard to be surrounded by people that are able-bodied because when you're like, oh my gosh, I went on a walk today. Like people Mm -hmm. are like, cool, good for you, you know? Um, Or like one of my small victories within the last week is not only did I go on a walk, I went on a walk with a coffee mug in my hand and my wrists and my fingers have been really weak and hypermobile recently. And so being able to like go on a walk with a coffee mug that was like full of tea was a small victory because that can be really hard for me. So, and sometimes the small victory is admitting that something is hard for me and asking for help, which is really hard because I've gone through my entire life. What? You an, ind- you an independent woman? No way. <laughs> um, and so sometimes it's that. And it's also hard to not let my small victories be jaded by ableism or by weight loss culture. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I'm in my final clinical rotation. So I'm finally just working full time. I'm not doing classes and clinic. And since then, which has not really been all that long, I have had a decrease in stress. I also got a CPAP in that time and having good sleep, shocking, um, (laughs) makes a big difference. (laughs) Yes. You've had the space and the actual time in your schedule to, I think you bring up such a good point to, to focus on other areas of your health or kind of take that next step of. I, for those listening to get a sleep study. Like, I mean, we all know how hard it is as a, adults to, okay, I need to, this thing is bothering me. And then you realize, oh wait, this thing's been bothering me for like a year now. Okay. However, <laughs> to actually make the appointment, do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was one of the, one of the hardest things about doing this diagnosis while I was in grad school and pursuing I'm still in the, the pursuit of a couple other diagnoses that I think I have at the very least, I have lots of symptoms. So I know that there is something else going on too. And they are very frequently comorbid with EDS, but the process of finding a doctor, going to the doctor, going to get the follow-up test, then going to the doctor's appointment to get the test read, then a follow-up appointment to figure out what the treatment plan is. Like, All of that is a lot for anyone. It is an added layer when you are in school or if you have kids or if you work two jobs or whatever it is, when you are extraordinarily busy and stressed out, it's really hard to go in and do that extra, extra piece of taking care of yourself. Not to mention like, I'm lucky that I had really good insurance. That's not always the case. And so there are lots of other barriers that come into getting a diagnosis. Even if you are like, I think this is what's wrong. There are a lot of steps and it's, a, it was a lot of work to just get a diagnosis. Even though I was one that my doctor brought up, mm-hmm. there was still so many other steps to it. And then 
doing the treatment on top of that physical therapy, making sure that I am eating nutritious food, the sleep study, and then getting the CPAP and like all of those extra things are a lot to do when you are that busy and that stressed out from everything else. It's just like, oh, I have one more thing I have to go do today. And the amount of times that I wanted to call and cancel physical therapy, my physical therapist would probably be ashamed, but also (laughs) understand because he went through grad school too, you know? So what advice, what advice would you have for somebody in maybe in your shoes or just in a really tough season of life, but is also trying to figure out this thing with their health, whether it is their relationship with food or deeper with a diagnosis, what, what advice would you have? I have a couple of things that come to mind. So I think first it is worth it to go through and investigate what is going on in that same thought. It is important to know that you're investigating something that regardless of what it ends up being, is a mystery and it is not necessarily going to be solved right away. And you are going to go little by little and almost like chip away at it until you find out what's going on. Even though, like I said, my doctor was the one that recommended this diagnosis. I've been having unknown, like hip pain of unknown origin for almost 10 years. My knees longer than that since I was a literal child. And with that, like it is a long, it can be a long road. It's not always a long road, but it can be a long road. And it's really hard to keep that in mind when you're going through the hard parts of that. But I think it is 100% worth figuring out what's going on because then you can better provide for yourself. Whether it be you learn that like, you're intolerant to certain foods and you have to um, change your diet. That's hard. That's a long road. That's a big process, but you do feel better when you do it. So it's worth doing it in the long run. And I think not only is it worth doing, it is important that you have a support system. Not only do I have a good support system personally, everyone, mm, Mostly everyone in my (laughs) personal life is pretty able-bodied. And so I also have multiple support groups that I'm just in online, like on Facebook, that help problem solve, like the best shoes to wear, or like people are looking for like a new bed or physical therapy in the area or whatever, Um, having any kind of support whether that be in your personal life, whether it be virtually, whether it be a support group that meets once a month also makes a big difference of going through those hard moments, like not liking your body and wanting to go through it. And if you want to throw it in there, Katie, here's a fun plug because another great support system that I have is the Facebook group over that Katie runs. So that's, that's I was one like that our I, Facebook group, your Facebook group. <laughs> Um, that's a fun one to be in. And yeah, so I, the support is very important and not losing, not losing hope, which is really easy, but also not losing the light of what you're doing. Like the idea that the end goal, the end goal is there. And my, my little, so the EDS is genetic and my little sister is not quite ready to Mm. acknowledge the things that come with that. um, And the fact that she might have it has it. Um, Mm. And because she was an athlete forever. Mm -hmm. um, And so it's a hard thing for her to process and go through. And, you know, having me is helpful but I'm not superwoman and I am dealing with my own stuff too. But she's starting to learn the value of pursuing the diagnosis through knowing that the changes that you can make will make a big difference. Yeah. There's res- resources available that 
Yeah. To make it better. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things with EDS is that there's not a cure. There's not really a solid treatment option. It's like, it's more like symptom, symptom management. Yeah. And that was Mm -hmm. for the longest time, part of like one of my biggest fears pursuing a diagnosis is like, what if I get a diagnosis and they can't do anything about it? Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I got EDS, that was my first reaction is like, okay, I have this connective tissue disorder that nobody can do anything about. That's great. But then learning that like symptom management is still improving my quality of life. Yeah. That's such a good point. It may not be the end all be all. Like I do have to live with it for the rest of my life unless something changes, but it is worth pursuing the diagnosis to eventually learn how to best take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. That's very specific to if you think you have a disorder or something going on, I would say that that's true for mental health too. Not that Mm -hmm. that's really what the conversation's about. No, Um, but you bring up, you bring up so many good points. And I think for people listening, they can relate to many aspects of that. You know, we all know that that thing that needs pursuing that it's either inconvenient, it's low on our priority, but at the same time, we want it to be top of our priority. So tying that back in, then, you know, what advice would you have for somebody who's maybe on the fence about intuitive eating or non-diet approach, or, you know, they're trying to juggle, I've got all these different health things that I want to focus on. I don't know where to start. What advice would you have for somebody in that boat? With intuitive eating, I think one of the things that was important for me is that I didn't do it by myself. Not in the sense of like my husband is off doing his own thing all the time. So not like in my household, but I had like a cohort of other people that was going through it that I could share the ups and downs of intuitive eating. The other thing that it's just worth noting is me coming to a diagnosis and me coming to all of these things that have helped manage my symptoms to where I genuinely feel the best I've felt ever started with my journey in intuitive eating. And I didn't know if intuitive eating was going to be the right thing for me at that time. It was just, I hoped that it would help and it did, but that was my first step. And so knowing that you're not going to do it alone because there is a Facebook group or two um, (laughs) that you can be a part of with Katie's podcast helps a lot when you're getting started and knowing that it may just be the thing that springboards you into finding out what's going on with your body. um, If you think that you have something else going on. Yeah, Ashley, I I think you, you said it so beautifully. Like it was really a foundation for you to, because we, you know, we talk a lot about on the podcast that intuitive eating is it's self-care is, is really a baseline. And you were going through this crazy season of life slash still (laughs) are slash finishing that we, you did, you put in the work, really, you had that accountability to put in the work, to work towards yourself, to put in some of that, those basic self-care habits that then allowed you to really build off them. Mm -hmm. I think, would you agree? Yes. Yes. I would definitely agree with that. Oh, Well, you've dropped so many golden nuggets. It's been so fun talking to you. We could talk forever. We're definitely going to link to, if you have specific links or resources that you find helpful with EDS, we'll definitely link to those in the show notes. If somebody's like, what is this? This maybe sounds like something I know, or they want to connect with you. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes, but we love to wrap up all our podcast episodes by hearing from you. You already shared one good thing about your walk, but tell us what is the best thing that's happened to you this week? And today, this is a Tuesday. So we'll just say like past seven days. <laughs> um, yeah. So I thought about this question all day today. Um, and- oh my gosh. I love that. What's my, um, what's, she knew Ashley listens to the podcast. So you already knew that this was coming. I bet. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so I did. I thought about it all day today. And I had a really good moment. So my current clinical rotation is in a school and I had a moment that was really good. And I was like, that's it. That's the one. But then 10 minutes before we got on this call, 
my best friend called me and told me that they're expecting a baby. And so that trumps out a little bit. (laughs) Like that'll be the best moment. The last seven days, the next 20 days, like it's excellent. Is Is this your first friend who's having a baby? Yeah. Yeah. It really is. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I remember my first friend and a few friends who told me it's, it is such a different experience. You, you feel like so connected to them and it's weird how happy and joyous you are for them. So you feel that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, currently they have just told their families and, and me you. and my husband, <laughs> um, cause it like, just now, like recently took the test within the last like 24 hours. Oh my uh, gosh. I love yeah. It. But yeah, it's it, like, I don't personally want kids, but I have been dying for my friends to start having Aww. children so that I can be the best aunt ever. And so, yes, I feel so joyous. I am so excited. And I mean, excited for them, but I'm excited for me too. So blood, that's blood related or not, auntie life is the best life. Amen to that. Yes, I'm very excited. Well, Ashley, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your vulnerability, for opening up and just for sharing your journey. We know for sure that, you know, your your story is just going to inspire somebody. And if you want to connect with Ashley, she hangs out in the Facebook groups. We'll put links to that as well. Yes, I do. I never know how to end these things. We just go, okay, bye. Uh, thanks for listening. This was great. Um, <laughs> that's good. We'll stop. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. If you like this episode, don't forget to share it with a friend. You can subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Fit Friends Happy Hour. Talk to you next time.